From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. If you listen to Problem Solvers, I bet you have some problems you're trying to figure out for yourself. I wonder what they are. Maybe it's about growth or writing or PR or personal branding or something else entirely. Well, I want to offer you advice directly. And here's how I'm going to do it. When you pre-order my book right now, I'll send you a voice memo answering any business question you have. So what is this book? If you have not been paying attention, it is called Build for Tomorrow, and it is designed to help you thrive during moments of change. I wrote it because everyone's work and lives are changing these days. I bet yours is too. And in my time at Entrepreneur, I've learned that the most successful people are the most adaptable. So how do they turn change to their advantage? I spent years figuring that out and now have collected the smartest entrepreneur's wisdom, lessons, exercises, and tactics into this book, Build for Tomorrow. It is a guide to adaptability, and I really believe it can help you grow. So when you order in the month of August, you will get that personal voice memo from me answering any business question you have, as well as 50% off a digital subscription to Entrepreneur. All you have to do is go to jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. Again, that is Jason Pfeiffer, J-A-S-O-N, F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R, dot com slash book, and then follow the instructions on the page. I am so excited for you to read this book and eager to see how I can directly help you with advice. So thanks, and we'll talk soon. Now, on with the episode. Some problems have really straightforward solutions. If your sink is broken, there's a pretty straightforward way to fix it. Don't ask me what that is. I'm not good with that stuff. But yeah, you know what I mean. You got to find the problem and then you fix that problem and then the sink starts working. It's straightforward. But then there's another kind of problem, the big life-changing problem, the decision that you just don't know how to make, the thing that doesn't seem to have one right answer. How are you supposed to address that problem? What even is that problem? Well, you could call it a wild problem which is a phrase from this guy. I'm Russ Roberts. I'm the president of Shalem College and the John and Jean Denault uh, Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I'm the author of Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. Russ is also the host of a popular podcast called Econ Talk. And here's the interesting thing. Russ is a very accomplished and very well-known economist. But when he looks at how to solve wild problems, and then he looks at the the logic steps that he has learned for how to address problems, he finds that they don't, they don't really always match up. To think like an economist is to think like a maximizer. They are always optimizing. What I argue in the book is that optimizing in the context of big life decisions is probably not really possible. So what is a better way to address wild problems? How do you find an answer for these things that are kind of unanswerable? Russ wanted to understand that better, and so he went on a long journey and gathered great insights and wisdom from, well, the ancients and some modern players today, including Bill Belichick. The Bill Belichick thing, actually, I would say was the most fascinating part of our conversation, (laughs) which you may not expect, but just wait for it. It's just so interesting. And what he came back with was a real guide to just thinking through 
the most challenging problems in front of you and also liberating yourself from knowing that sometimes there isn't one right answer, but there is at least a way to feel comfortable with the answer that you have. So that is what we're going to talk about on Problem Solvers today. It is how to address wild problems with Russ Roberts coming up after the break. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Once again, that's visa.com slash smallbusinesshub. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, we're back. So let's jump into it with Russ Roberts talking about wild problems. Russ, the way that you define a wild problem is going to be familiar to anybody who has lived a human life. I'm going to just read it out to you here so that we have it for the record. A fork in the road of life where knowing which path is the right one isn't obvious, where the pleasure and pain from choosing one path over another are ultimately hidden from us, where the path we choose defines who we are and who we might become. Wild problems are the big decision all of us have to deal with as we go through life. So that feels lofty, but the one that you start with is a question of having children. You also explore, do you get married? To whom do you get married? Where do you move? So these are big problems that everyone has to face. And the thing that really struck me at the very, very beginning of the book was that you write that as a trained economist, you have been taught to quantify things, to know that everything has a price, that nothing is of infinite value. And you're right, I've come to believe that when it comes to the big decisions of life, those principles can lead us astray. That was super interesting. Can you tell me how you came to realize that the things that you were trained to think of as solution-minded thinking to problems didn't apply to our largest life problems? And there's a weird thing in economics. You know, economics was started off as a study of why people buy stuff and why do they buy one thing and not another. And somebody along the way, I was trained in graduate school by some of the people who were working on this, realized, you know, this doesn't just apply to stuff we buy, but to all the choices we make, because we have a limited amount of time, we have a limited amount of money. And what economics is about is trade-offs. The fact that we can't have everything we want, we don't have enough money, to have everything we want. We don't have enough time to enjoy everything we want. And so the essence of the economics view of human behavior is that we try to be as happy as possible, to be as satisfied as possible, facing that reality of finite money and finite time. And once you face that reality, you've got to deal with trade-offs. And that's a very powerful idea. And it's really useful in lots and lots of areas. But I would suggest it's not so useful in this area partly because part of of the the pleasure and pain that we're going to experience from our choices is really difficult to anticipate. And the other point I, of course, deal with a lot in the book is that we care about more than just the day-to-day pleasures and pains that result from our choices. So if I said to you, for example, I'm I'm sitting here in Jerusalem, Israel, there's an ice cream shop that has a 
flavor of ice cream that has the spice, the herb, basil, basil, if you're, I think, a Brit. Is that going to be good? You're going to like that? Well, you have some idea what it tastes like. You might not be used to it, thinking of it within, in an ice cream flavor, but you might like it in other things. I think, I'm going to try it. You might like it. You might not like it. And if you do like it, you might have one once a week. Someone else might decide, eh, it's too much, once a month. And economics, in its traditional sense, is thinking about how do we think about how often we want those things, how often we buy, how much we buy. Those are, that's the essence of economics. But can it be applied to who we marry, whether we have children? And it turns out you can apply it to those things. We get pleasure from children like we get pleasure from ice cream. They're expensive, just like we have to pay money for ice cream, pay money to raise our children, time to pay attention to them, and so on and so forth. So we're thinking about everybody who has children worries about life, family, balance. So in that sense, economics is something even to say about that. But what I'm trying to argue in the book is that to think like an economist is to think like a maximizer. You're always optimizing. And I'm what I argue in the book is that optimizing in the context of big life decisions is probably not really possible. And if you if you think it is, you're probably misleading yourself. And you know, when I tell this to economists, they don't like that. <laughs> when I tell it to engineers, they don't like it. It's not just economists who have this this analytical approach to decision making. Of course, trade-offs are at the root of all kinds of areas of human choice. Computer science, how big, you know, how big a program should you build to answer a, a computer program problem, computing problem, a coding problem. And there's trade-offs constantly everywhere in life. And so thinking like an economist is very powerful, but fundamentally I'm arguing that in these big life decisions, it's not the right toolkit to bring to the problem. You know, it's funny because I think had you come out with a book that said the tools of economics actually are very helpful for you to solve your life problems, people would have said, Oh, good. Tell me about that. Because they're looking for some way to outsource the problem. They want some system to apply to it. And a economic approach is a very logical, quantifiable approach to how to think through complex systems. So you have instead yanked that away. What do you have in its place? Yeah, I pulled the rug out from under the uh, the would-be economist, the rational approach to decision-making. And of course, what I argue in the book is that there's so many apps and algorithms that help us do all kinds of things. And I love them. They're wonderful. I love that Spotify can recommend fantastic music for me. I don't have to wander aimlessly through the night looking for a bar that's playing a different kind of music than I already like and go, oh, do I like that one? Eh, maybe. It just it's really smart, right? So there's lots of parts of our lives. The other example, of course, is that's so dramatic for all of us is, is Google Maps or Waze. You know, if I want to get from, from A to B, if I want to get to a different city or get across town, it tells me how to get there as quickly as possible. It takes into account traffic. Fantastic. What it doesn't tell you is whether that's where you should be going. And so part of the theme of the book is that we're really good at getting places efficiently. We're not so good at thinking about where we should go in the first place. And I think that's a big problem with modern life. We're always in a hurry. Give me a life hack. How do I do that better, faster, quicker, cheaper? All admirable in the right context, most contexts, a lot of contexts. But I'd say in this kind of case, where we're talking about whether to marry, what career to embrace, how many, whether to have children and how many, these are places where most of us in the modern world are totally at sea. We're unmoored. We have no, a lot of the traditions that used to answer these questions for us are gone. We have a lot more freedom. 
And in a certain sense, that's wonderful. We can we have a lot more choices. The challenge is we don't have the tools to necessarily get them get make those choices. And we're we're used to tools elsewhere. So give me these tools. Where are the tools for these decisions? And so I one of the part of the argument of the book is that this is very frustrating. And it's very makes us very uneasy. And I, you have to kind of, not kind of, you have to adopt a different kind of attitude toward these problems than you adopt toward which book to buy next, which movie you're going to watch next on on Netflix, or how am I going to get to to Detroit as quickly as possible? That you have to embrace a different mindset. So the first half of the first part of the book is that is great scientists, great thinkers, great rational analytical people just as bad at these things as you and I are, you and me. They don't really have special powers. In fact, you could argue they do worse. <laughs> They're very clueless often as to what how to proceed in these areas. So that's that's the first point. And then the second point is, so now what? Which is now a long-winded way to get to your, to your question. And I give a couple of answers, but I do have to warn readers. I mean, I'm tempted to say, if you send me $50 via Venmo, I'll send you the unpublished appendix it gives you the algorithm for making these decisions. Unfortunately, that appendix hasn't been written, never will be written. These decisions are fundamentally difficult for us. First of all, there's often no right answer. That can possibly be liberating. So it takes some of the pressure off. I think a lot of times we think, you know, I got to find the best romantic partner. I have to find the best podcast. I got to find the best headphones. I got to find the best, best, best. Give me wire cutter. Give me recommendations, Amazon. Give me in life, again, probably not defined. You can't find the best partner. It's not just that that person's very far away and you're going to have trouble running into them. It's that who you live with for the rest of your life or even a good chunk of your life, as opposed to a weekend. If you're going to live with somebody for a while, it's got a, it's a multidimensional problem. It's a matrix. It's not a single number, like a seven out of 10. It's seven on this, a three on that, and nine on this, a 10 on this, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, so how do I add them all? There's no rule for that. So that's why, in a mathematical sense, that's why it's not really an algorithm because you can't really get there from here. So then what should you do? And I argue there's a few different things you should do. First, you should recognize that in a lot of these cases, these decisions define who we are. They create an overarching sense of ourselves that we can that we want to respect. And so the self-respect and dignity that comes from making good choices that take you to who you can be and not just who you are. Those are very important. They go way beyond the day-to-day pleasure and pain. Just to take a trivial example, uh, child raising is really hard. So is pregnancy. I've only seen it secondhand, but I saw four of them. I saw my wife take four children to term without any drugs in the delivery room. Oh boy. That's not easy. You know, I salute her. And then that's just that's just the beginning. <laughs> You're in for a big roller coaster. And part of that roller coaster is how you feel about roller coasters changes once you've had the children. So we, before you have children, you look at what it looks like. It looks not so fun. And guess what? A lot of it isn't fun. But the fun part, which is not exactly fun, but satisfying, rewarding, meaningful, purposeful, and so on, those are hard to anticipate before you have them. So you're kind of, again, in a in the dark, got to make a leap. And uh, so I argue that when you make that leap, you're defining yourself as a parent. You're becoming a different kind of person. You might not want to. That's a choice as well. And we t- I talk all about the non-choices that we, that we also, quote, make. But you should take that into account. You should be aware that your choices in these areas determine who you are. They define you. Also, they produce a set of satisfactions that go well beyond the day-to-day. And 
again, to go back to your earlier question about economics, economics is about sort of day-to-day. It's not so good at the bigger picture type stuff, meaning purpose. You can squeeze it into the economics framework, but really not that helpful. You, in the book, list out a lot of examples of people, contemporary people throughout history, grappling with decisions and how they have strategized their way through them. And and I, I want to bring up a couple here as a means of exploring the lesson in them. So one of them is a mathematician whose name I'm going to butcher, so please correct me, Piet Hein. Yeah. Is that, do I have that correct? And a poet. So, a mathematician and a poet. and a poet. Mathematician and a poet, right. Who writes, well, why don't you explain the penny flip? So you'll hear this from decision theorists as well. I also talk about some decision theorists who struggle with making decisions because they recognize that their theory is really, it's nice on the blackboard, not so easy to actually use. But, but Piet Hein says in a poem that you should flip a coin when you're trying to make a big yes, no decision, marry, not marry, move, not move, accept the job, turn down the job, flip a coin. And when it's in the air, you'll find yourself subconsciously intuitively hoping it comes up one way or the other. And so the coin flip isn't to make the decision. It's to it's to activate your gut, <laughs> your instinct. And a lot of serious analytical people describe this as, and that way you'll know what you really want. And I found that so fascinating. Like what could be more what you really want than an, than an analytical approach where you calmly, rationally, in the cold light of day, make a list, say, of the pros and cons. The idea that you would then flip a coin because you don't like the list (laughs) is peculiar. It's even more peculiar to suggest you should flip the coin so you know what you really want, as if a rational, well-thought-out list of pros and cons isn't enough. And I argue in the book, it's not enough for a whole bunch of reasons. And I give a number of examples of one of them is a mathematician, a decision theorist, actually, who, when He's trying to decide whether to take a, a job offer at Harvard. He's in the at the time he's at Stanford and he he's can't make his mind up. And one of his friends says, Well, just use one of your, you know, look at expected utility or expected well-being and make a list effectively. Say, make a list of pros and cons. And he says, Come on, this is serious. Meaning it's way more important than those silly little lists of pros and cons. Another a psychologist writes, yeah, she made her list of pros and cons trying to decide what to do. And she realized, oh, it's not coming out right. Better add some more to one side, which is the same idea. So I flip the coin. And if I don't like how it comes out, I'll just flip it again. Because when it was in the air, I realized, oh, I want it to come up heads. I want to take the job or I'm afraid of the job. So if it comes up tails, I better flip it again. And I think that insight is very strange because the whole idea that our gut our intuition is what we should lean on for these analytical scientific people is very strange. And I think we learned something profound from it. Now, I'm not going to say, and I don't say in the book, oh, so follow your gut. I think following your gut can be incredibly dangerous. It can lead Mm -hmm. you astray. It can do all kinds of dangerous things to you. But I focus on these analytical thinkers because it shows you, while theoretically we can talk about the power of analytical techniques in, in situations of uncertainty, as human beings, they they really make us uncomfortable. And we don't, we do not like to just go by the numbers. We're going to take a short break and come back with more with Russ Roberts. If you're a business leader, there are things you love doing, like building great things and serving people. And then there are the things you hate doing, like inbox management and project follow-ups. Ugh. 
Did you know that delegating those tasks could help you reclaim an average of 15 hours every week? It is time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay has been helping busy leaders do exactly that. They're helping with their staffing solutions. They've been doing it for over a decade. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting, and more. Great leaders don't do anything alone. You have to find the support you need to delegate the details, and you can do that with Belay. So get started now. Just text SOLVE to the number 55123 to get $300 off your startup fee for a virtual assistant when you schedule a call before August 31st. That's SOLVE, S-O-L-V-E, to 55123 to save $300 and reclaim 15 hours every week. All right, we're back talking about wild problems with Russ Roberts. Well, let's stay on this for a moment because this little exercise of the coin flip made me think of a couple different things and I want to share them and get your responses. So number one is I was a philosophy minor in college and I do not remember who wrote some version of this in whatever very long and dry tome that I read, but it has always stuck with me, which is that when someone is seeking advice and they go ask somebody for advice, that they are making a selection about who to ask based on an expectation of what that person is going to tell them. And therefore, what they're really looking for is a confirmation of the thing that they want, but cannot just self-motivate themselves to get. And both the the kind of feeling that you're supposed to get in the middle of the coin flip and that observation from an unknown philosopher that some listener hopefully will recognize and tell me who it was, both tell me that inside of us often is an answer, but we, for some reason, are either afraid to listen to it or maybe feel like the answer that we have self-generated is not important enough to drive the decision. What do you make of that? Well, I think we have a lot of trouble accessing our real self and we have to concede at times that that real self perhaps doesn't exist. We think there is one in there. We think, and, and that's the one that's in charge, of course, is our real self. But our brain does funny things to us and it pushes us around sometimes. That's why it's dangerous, just to quote, go with your gut. I think the lesson of that, I think that philosopher you're talking about is very wise. I often tell people when they're in an ethical quandary, and I talk about ethics a reasonable amount in this book, you are trying to decide what the right thing to do is. You should ask what Adam Smith called an impartial observer, someone who doesn't have your self-interest at heart the way you do. Ask someone who's impartial, doesn't have a stake. And obviously, philosophical insight you've shared is so wonderful and profound because we'd like to think sometimes we're choosing somebody objective or impartial, but it's actually the person who we anticipate is going to give us, quote, what we really want. And sometimes I think part of that is a fear of regret. And thereby, by asking an expert or another person or getting counsel, we are appealing to authority. This person's wise or this person is cares about me, knows more about it, isn't as emotionally involved, can make a, a rational decision for me when I, maybe I can. But of course, your brain then says, so pick somebody who's going <laughs> to make the decision you're going to make it anyway. But if you do it right and you go to an actual objective observer, somebody who who's, cares enough about you to take it seriously, but doesn't have a stake in the outcome of the decision, you can get obviously some insight. And what you're worried about often in that situation, one is a fear of regret that you'll make a decision that you'll regret later. And part of you know what I argue for is that your regret is a, it's a strange emotion in a world of uncertainty. When you can't 
anticipate how your decisions are going to play out. The whole idea of a mistake is not well-defined. And I argue, I don't know if it's humanly possible, but I argue that, that if we could be less worried about mistakes, we would take more chances and be more comfortable taking risks. And I suggest some different ways you, know, you might do that. I talk about different ways you can obviously use optionality in the case of financial decision-making in your personal decision-making as well. And it's basically that you can take stuff back. You can return stuff. You can change your mind. It's okay. But a lot of times, I think emotionally, we have trouble doing that. We're afraid ex ante that that's going to be the situation we find ourselves in. And therefore, we, we just were frozen. Right, and so- a lot of what uh, that's hard about decision-making is, is pretending we're doing something analytical, like getting outside counsel or doing more research. We're just procrastinating. We just don't want to make a decision. And the, okay, so you said two things and I want to follow up on both of them. I'll start with the first one, which was talking about the idea of a mistake. You write that one way of avoiding letting life pass you by is to stop worrying about making a mistake in quotes. It's not a mistake when you can't do any better. And this makes me think back to the struggle that we might have with listening to an answer that we're carrying around in our head, because I think the challenge that we have is that Maybe deep down, we know what decision we want to make, but we're not listening to it because we are not sure if it's the right decision because that is based upon a belief that there is a right and wrong decision. So the reason we go around and try to gather more data is simply to start to feel like the decision is the right one. And this makes me think, Russ, of a conversation I had literally yesterday. I live in New York City, and so I do what everyone in New York City does, which is constantly wonder if we should leave New York City. And this is the challenge that I, I very like. My wife and I are like very deep into right now. Is like, where do we move? You know, we we really haven't exactly contemplated leaving the city, but we've contemplated leaving our neighborhood, which is almost like leaving the city. And anyway, point is, we visited some friends who had moved to New Jersey, like an hour and a half outside the city, and asked them as we sit in their lovely large kitchen overlooking a lovely large backyard, neither of which we have, what it was like. And you know, our friend Christine said, you know, we thought it was going to be a really hard adjustment and it was at first, but now it's great and it's fine. And what we discovered is like, you can probably just be happy anywhere you go, which in a way is nice. It's great. There's no wrong answer. Just pick one. But in a way, Russ, is horrifying and terrible because what it means is that there's no guidance. If I can move anywhere, then I could go anywhere. That's terrible. I don't want to go literally anywhere. I don't want to spin the globe and point somewhere. So what on earth is the difference? Or where's the where are you supposed to land in the gap between anything that you make is the right decision? And there actually probably is a decision that will lead to greater happiness. What what's in the middle of that? That's a tough one. I do remember meeting someone once at a party and hearing her tell a stranger a few minutes after I'd met her. Actually, I, I knew her a little bit before the party. And there she's at the party telling a stranger that she lives in Manhattan. And I said afterwards, I said, don't you live in New Jersey? Yeah, yeah. But I, I couldn't <laughs> tell him I was in New Jersey. Right. Now, that that's an example of how the day-to-day isn't nearly as important for some people and in some decisions as, as that feeling of identity being defined by where you live. And for some people, that's very, very important. Other people, it's not. So it is good to know yourself, figure out what is supremely important to you, what is much less important. If you love dogs and you love bounding around in, with your dog in a tennis ball, 
you're probably going to be happier in some places than others. If you like walking to a local coffee shop as opposed to driving, this. but the problem, of course, there's 50 of those. You have many, many things you care about and no one place has all of them. Kind of like choosing a spouse. You know, there's a spouse who's fabulous, a potential spouse who's who's fantastic at this and not so good at that. High on one dimension, not on another. Now, what do you do? And the answer is there's no right answer. So that's the first thing, but it's not random. It's not like spin the globe. It's not like pick a stranger off the bus for the subway. I mean, if you're in Manhattan, you could be the subway, but if you're in New Jersey, you don't have access to that, Jason. You're going to be, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. That's true. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't mean random. It means you've got to take a shot and and you want to remember in the back of your mind, as, as uh, a friend of mine says, and I, I write about this in the book, you know, you're going around, you're on a canoe trip. You got to pick an island to camp at. And there's always a better island around the corner. And if you're not careful, you're on the canoe all night instead of having a nice sleep on a beautiful island in the middle of a river. And similarly, if you're always procrastinating, you never leave New York because I don't know which one to choose. So try one for a while. Try New Jersey. It's it's unpleasant to move. Try to get better at moving. Try to get better at that stress. And that takes some of the pressure off. But you probably are not. If you're choosing between New Jersey and New York, you're probably not going to throw in, say, Biloxi, Mississippi, at least tomorrow. Right. But yeah, it's hard. Life's hard. It's not no simple. Where's that book? Where's that book that tells me where I need to live? Right. By the way, I, I need that I have book. to tell you. Yeah. It just came out. They named Huntsville, Alabama as the best city in America to live in. And do you see that? No, I didn't. It toppled Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. And my parents were at Huntsville. My my dad passed away uh recently, but my mom's lived and my mom has lived there for 40 years. Loves it. And it's a nice town. But when they listed why it's one of the best places to live, they said, I don't remember who did the survey. They said affordable housing. And it's not too crowded. And there was some other thing. And it's like, yeah, affordable housing and not too crowded because a lot of people don't want to live there. That's right. And it's a, it's a nice place to live for some people. But the whole idea that you're going to pick the best place that it's Huntsville and I'll go there and I'll be happy. It's just a way to sell magazines, I'm afraid. Yeah, I agree with that. Traffic, not I, figuring out where to live. I will admit to you that I'm very familiar with creating lists to sell magazines. It's, it works. It, it, it works. does work. <laughs> it turns out. So let's let's just talk, you had said optionality. Let's just talk about that for a few minutes and, I'll let, and then I'll let you get back to your day. So optionality comes up in the book in this section. Well, it may come up in other places, but the one that I saw it come up in was, uh, was in the section about Bill Belichick, the yeah. Patriots coach. So I want to talk to you about some of what I've thought about as I read that section, but can you start by just summarizing some of the important lessons that we can pull from Bill Belichick? Yeah. So I, I also use the example of Zappos. Zappos, really hard to know what kind of shoes are going to be comfortable and how they're going to look with that pair of pants you have. And so you buy eight pairs and return them for free. You don't say, oh, I'm going to agonize over which is the best one of these eight. Take all of them because you can return them. And not all of life is easy as Zappos. All right, you can't reverse every decision at relatively low cost of a prepaid envelope or box. But you should keep that in mind as a way of comforting you and not having to be afraid of making some decisions. And Bill Belichick, I argue, and I, this is, I think it's my idea. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's really my idea. I don't even know if it's true. But the idea of it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's a good setup. Bill Bel- he did it this year, so I feel good about it, yeah. fortunately, in this year's draft. What he likes to do is take a high draft pick and then trade it for multiple lower draft picks, meaning later rounds. So we might have a first round pick, the 23rd pick in the draft. Instead of using that, he'll trade it for a second and a third round pick or a fifth, sixth, and seventh round pick. He loves doing that. And why would he, why would you do that? And one reason he does it, I think, is that he's very aware that 
as smart as he is, and he knows more about football, you could argue, than anybody, as smart as he is, most of his draft picks are not good. And once you realize that, what you want to do is have lots of them so that you can take advantage of what is called the law of large numbers. You know, if you're only if only about two-thirds of them are going to pan out, or better yet, example, one-third, and pan out, remember, means doesn't doesn't mean, oh, he's a very talented person, very good athlete. It means will we'll turn out to perform well in my system, which is just like moving to Huntsville, Alabama. It might be great for some people, but for other people, not so nice because the things that are nice about it, they don't care so much about. So mm-hmm. Belichick concedes, if my theory is correct, that he can't anticipate, he doesn't know enough, he doesn't have enough information. So rather than try to figure out which is the exact best one in of the group for his team, he brings a bunch of them in, hoping that some mm-hmm. of them will pan out. And I think that idea which is, again, the optionality is, is that they don't work out. He doesn't sign them for a longer-term contract. That idea is a you know kind of an obvious idea, but I think we struggle to do that in our actual life. We're very worried. This vacation has to be perfect. Well, you could have a bunch of them. You might be better off taking a bunch of small vacations, figuring out what you, learning what you like about vacation, and then you'll be a better chooser later on. So what Belichick does is he brings them in, tries them out, sees how they work out with his team, his rules, his discipline, his structure of, of offense and defense. And that's what we're all, we're doing that, all of that when we take a vacation, pick a life partner, pick a career. They're all full of pluses and minuses. And often we're ignorant in advance of the, what those are going to be. So try some, if especially in cases where you could take them back, right? So when I first, I remember dating, I used to, I'd have a date, we'd have dinner, we'd go to a movie, and then we'd go out for a drink. It's like, wait a minute, coffee. <laughs> Coffee. I learned Half this on dating too. 45 minutes. And then if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But the idea that you can try again is really powerful in many situations. Not all, right? Many situations that you've made a leap that's permanent. And we, I talk about that a lot in the book also, obviously. But this idea that you can sometimes reverse your decisions is useful. And it's, I think it's hard for us because, again, it, if we reverse the decision, it's like, oh, I made a mistake. Bill Belichick constantly cuts players that he picked in high rounds because they don't pan out. And other coaches have emotional difficulty with that. I understand why. We all do. It's like, wait a minute, you used a first round pick on that guy? Or you chose that car? It's a horrible car. What were you thinking? And you feel like a fool. Better, a lot of times, we'll, we keep going with that choice and just try to talk ourselves into it that it was a good choice. Belichick says, no, mistake, end of the story. So you know, I just suggest that in cases where that's relatively inexpensive, it's good strategy. Right. Because Belichick is being realistic about the challenge of the choice. The thing is that for as much as he can know about football, he cannot know how good this particular player coming out of college is going to be in the NFL because it's simply impossible to know how one individual can move from one system to another. So if that's the reality of it, then you have probably just as good a percentage chance, if we're going to get economic about it, to see success with a higher round pick as to see success with a lower round pick. So you might as well get more more picks. It's often the case that the higher round, that the those earlier picks are better than the later picks, but not always. So it's better to take three of the pretty good ones for one possibly really good one, but possibly not, in which case you're cooked. He also understands depth, which is a whole nother side point that understands that it's really powerful to have lots of pretty good players. They're cheaper, by the way, also per person. He's got a lot of insights. Right. And by the way, was an economics major. So, Oh, he, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And I think Wesleyan. I uh, that right. 
Uh, we can we can Google it. But th- that's super interesting. So let me tell you, let me tell you the one thing that I thought of while I was reading that section of the book that I didn't see in the section. So I want to see you react to it, and then I'll uh, I'll let you go. So here it is. What I was thinking when he when when I was reading this about how he he selects these players is how what he is doing is he is shifting the onus onto himself because when you you've cocked your head watch me watch me try to pull through this when you try to decide if something is the right pick whether that's where to live or what to do next in your business or what city to move in in a way you're putting a lot of onus on the thing itself externally this better be good this this place better deliver for me this player better show up and be really really good i am shifting the onus on there which which in a way is washing my hands of the decision i'm going to go and this thing is either going to perform for me or it is not going to perform for me but what belichick understands and perhaps what we all should adopt as a mindset is that it is actually his responsibility to make it work and not all of them are going to work but he is going to get a bunch of players and he is going to try to turn one of them into a true fantastic contributor to his team. It is on him to make that work. In the same way as if you were to move cities, it really is on you. You better go make an effort because the city is not going to show up. The mayor is not going to show up at your door and say, thank you for moving to town. Here are all the places to go and here are your new friends. You got to go out and do that yourself. So really the onus is always upon us to make the decision work. But the problem that we have is that we spend so much time hoping and thinking that the thing we select is going to perform for us. And maybe that is our ultimate error here because if we can trust that we are the ones that are going to make something work, then we have a little bit of a superpower in that we can widen our options, select one without thinking that it is the only option, and then go and try to make it work. What do you make of that? Uh, Well, I think that's fantastic. I want to try to apply it outside football, and then maybe we'll bring it back to football for football fans, but I I think it's quite... (laughs) Yeah, no, this is not a football podcast or magazine, so I'm happy to move away from the ball. And I'm sure Bill is listening. I love when people tell him he's making a mistake. He made a bad choice. I'm sure it keeps him up late at night. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he cares. Before you apply this, I'll tell you that my, yeah. my only connection to Bill Belichick, which is a, a meaningless one, is that when I was a kid, I discovered, hot tip for anybody with kids, I discovered that if I bought a pack of cards, like basketball, football cards, whatever, and then I wrote, hand wrote in my childish handwriting, hand wrote a fan note to each one of them, dear Bill Belichick, dear Ronnie Cycli, dear whoever. And then I, I I asked them to sign the card and I just put it in the thing and I just addressed it to the stadium, Bill Belichick, whatever. And, and, I, and I include a self-addressed, self-addressed stamped envelope. They very well might sign it and send it back to you. Yeah. Large, large, talented people did this. One person who this was a completely unknown first-year coach of the Browns named Bill Belichick, who wrote on the card, Dear Jason Pfeiffer, and then he signed Bill Belichick. And I have that on his like rookie coach card. It is a it is a prized possession. And, yeah. uh, and so that's all I got for Bill Belichick. I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah. Maybe if I wrote him in my childish handwriting, he would be, be a guest on my podcast, Econ Talk, because try. he's one of my... I have some non-living guests I'd like to invite, like Adam Smith, but I don't think I'm going to get Smith on the program, but you never know about Bill. Yeah, you do. You should do uh, it. You know, he probably has a free half. It's an hour long program. 
And I think in the off season, he probably has 15 or 20 minutes available and he maybe he'd come on to my program. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's a really, I think that's a profound thought about the onus whose responsibility is. And I'll, let me try to bring it back to some of the other things we're talking about. Yeah. I use the example of Charles Darwin in the book. Darwin makes this list of the pros and cons of marriage and how, what a pitiful and depressing list it is because he knows virtually nothing about marriage, not surprisingly. But it's clear that he sees marriage the way an economist would, which is, what's in it for me? Like, is this going to be good for me or bad for me? Am I going to get more work done or less work done? Am I going to have to spend time with her family? Is she going to entertain me at night? Is she going to be charming or unpleasant? But if she wants to leave London, it's all about him. And it's all about what he's going to get out of it. And it, it's very similar to your example, which is like, okay, is this going to, you know, what's in it for me? And a much better attitude for marriage is what's in it for us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is that marriage is this weird institution, as is friendship. And I write a lot about friendship in the book, where you and I produce something together, like this conversation we're having. It's not just you wrote down a bunch of questions. And I answered them and you took notes or recorded it. We're creating something together Mm -hmm. and it's exhilarating, right? It's fun. Yeah. It's special. It's not. And if all I do is think about me, oh, I've got to get in that thing about chapter seven. I really like not only is that going to be not as much fun for you, but it probably means that the whole thing's not going to go as well. And so what's missing, one of the things that's missing from Darwin's view of marriage is maybe it'll be fun to make another person happy. Maybe Mm. that'll be a source of meaning and delight for me. So. If you say, I'm going on vacation and boy, I better be wowed by the Mona Lisa, you're in for a shock. It's a tiny little picture. It's not that interesting. It sucks. Yeah. The experience of the Mona Lisa sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And so your whole attitude toward how much fun is Paris going to be or how much fun is it going to be to be married to this other person is the wrong way to think about it. That's the narrow kind of parody of an economist view. What you should be thinking about instead is, how might this turn out? What might I explore? What will I discover? And the thing you're going to discover is how you can sometimes make lemonade out of lemons, how you can face with a crisis, rise above it, and help another person cope with, with a life challenge in, in the case of a marriage. In the case of a vacation, it's like, oh, it's raining. What do I do now? I guess I'm on my own to figure it out. I can't just do the thing I had planned. These things happen all the time in life. And I think Come, now I'll bring it back to the football example. What Bill Belichick is actually really, really good at is not uncovering the fantastic player among the draft choices that he had. It's taking a bunch of pretty good players and turning them into a fantastic team. And that must be exhilarating for him every year. He has very rarely, he had a really good quarterback, but a lot of his other players at skill positions, uh, wide receiver, pass rusher, he rarely has the best players in the league at those key positions. What he has is a lot of pretty good players. And he's figured out a system that allows them to work well as a team. And to use that as a metaphor for life, if you're always thinking like, how can I get the most fun out of this Saturday night? Instead thinking, well, how can I grow? How might I explore? How might I discover things about myself, my friends, the people around me. How might I live up to what they expect of me? And it's not all about me. The onus isn't, wow me, Mona Lisa. It's, hey, Mona, let's have a good time tonight. And I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. And I'm going to lower my expectations. And I'm part of it's on me, not just on right. you. And that's a very helpful, I think, attitude, very consistent with what I what I claim in the book. Russ, Love it. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was a blast. Take care, Jason. 
And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.